So open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 37. And we're going to read all the way down to verse 42. Again, that's Luke chapter 6. We're going to read verses 37 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and it'll be up on the slides behind me also. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And we thank you that that your word is tough for us to hear. God, we pray that you would would send your spirit this morning to to use these words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 to show us the ways in which we fall short. To show us the ways in which we are hypocrites. The ways in which we apply double standards to other people. God, I pray that you would would help us, you would, would protect us from seeing this passage this morning as something that somebody else needs to hear, but that we would see it instead as something that we need to hear, that we would know that there are times that we judge and condemn, times when we fail to forgive and fail to give, times in which uh, we want to deal with the speck in someone else's eye without seeing the log in our own. God, I pray that you would use your spirit to challenge and convict us with your word this morning. And that as we see the log that exists in our own eye, that we would be able to look past it and see Christ who came to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves. And we would know that that we have been freed from it. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your words in Luke 6. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so originally, we were going to go all the way to the end of chapter 6, um, but I wanted to stop at verse 42 because I think that we kind of need to just sit in this passage and hear what it has to say and receive what it has to say. What this passage, this short little chunk is mostly about, is, is hypocrisy. Um, and I think that if we are honest with ourselves, and if we're honest with one another, we will admit to the fact that we are hypocrites, right? There are times where we either intentionally, knowingly, or unintentionally, unknowingly apply double standards to other people. We expect them to do things that we won't do. We expect them to do better at things we do worse at. We treat other people uh, in a way that we would not want them to treat us. And this passage is a giant argument from Jesus against that behavior in us. And I think that if we will let it, the the Holy Spirit will use this passage to begin to root out that kind of hypocrisy in us. 
Um, and the reality is, is that for Christians, right, the word Christian, we've been told our whole lives it means, it means Christ-like. Uh, how many of us are, like, like Jesus? None of us. That means all the time we're calling ourselves something that we're not sure. We have good moments where we do something that's similar, that's almost like something Jesus did. Maybe we sacrifice. Maybe we're generous. Maybe we put someone else in front of us. There are moments that we do good things. I'm not saying, you know, we're worthless, horrible people. But we are hypocrites a lot of the time. And so I think we should hear what Jesus has to say to us this morning. So it kind of falls down into, into three chunks. There's a section at the end, you know, that we've heard about the speck and the log. There's a section in the middle where he talks about the blind people leading blind people. And at the very beginning, he gives us these four commands. Uh, judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. And each of those commands comes with a promise. And I think that we should see these commands as if we do these things, uh, it will help us not be hypocrites. These are kind of kind of guards against hypocrisy in our lives. And so there's four commands and four promises. The first one is judge not. And the promise is you will not be judged. And so the first thing we should ask when we see this, and uh, not this verse, but the, the corresponding verse from Matthew, is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. It's because it's a verse that people who aren't Christians like to use against Christians. I say, don't judge me. Your, your Bible says, don't judge. So why are you judging me? And so I think that it would be helpful for us to understand what does this verse mean and how do we apply it? And I do think it's really important for us to remember, and I'm going to say this probably five times as we go through the sermon today, that we need to remember that Jesus here is talking to his disciples. So he's talking to us. He's not telling other people not to judge and condemn and forgive and give. He's telling us to do these things. So he says, judge not. So what does judge not mean? Well, it means don't judge, right? But what does he mean by judge? The reason why we need to talk about this is because this word is used a lot of different ways in Scripture. So, for example, in Acts 20.16, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. When it says Paul decided to sail past Ephesus, it's saying Paul made a judgment call to sail past Ephesus. So Paul judged that he should sail past Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, For I decided, uh, I, I made a judgment call, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Do you think that is a, a, a good thing for Paul to decide? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. So clearly not all judging is bad. Luke 7, verses 40 through 43 uh, just a chapter later in Luke, it says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. So just a chapter later, Jesus throws out a hypothetical to Peter, asks Peter to make a decision. Peter makes a judgment, and Jesus says, Peter, I told you a chapter ago not to judge. Wait, he didn't say that, right? He said you made a good call. So clearly there are times in which we as believers are supposed to make wise decisions. We're supposed to make good judgments. 
word judge in Scripture is also used in negative ways. So in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In Romans 14, 3 through 4, he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. These two things are what Jesus seems to be telling us not to do. He's telling us not to be critical, not to pass judgment on other people, not to put ourselves in the place of God making judgments on other people about what they do. It's not saying we can't make wise decisions. It's not saying we can't use discernment. It's not even saying that we can't call out sin in other people's lives because there are places in Scripture where we're commanded to do that. Right In Matthew 18, if there's a believer who's not repenting of sin, Jesus tells us to go confront them. And if they don't repent, we're supposed to get more people and go confront them. If they don't repent, we're supposed to get the whole church to confront them. And so we're clearly called to address sin in other people's lives, but we're not supposed to do it with a critical and judgmental spirit. Um, and the promise is that we won't be judged. Again, we need to remember what the word judge means here, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to face judgment when we die. The, the book of Hebrews says that it's appointed to human beings to die once and after that to face judgment. All throughout the New Testament, it talks about a final judgment that we're going to face. It doesn't, Jesus here isn't saying, if you're never critical of other people, then you're never going to face judgment. Which, even if he was saying that, we've all already missed it. Right? Even this morning, we've been critical of other people. Two seconds ago, I misspoke, and like 30% of you were like, I can't believe he just did that. Right? We are prone to criticism. It's just who we are as human beings. And so this promise isn't saying we're never going to face judgment. What it's saying is that we, as Jesus' followers, as his disciples, because that's who he's talking to, we should recognize how much God has forgiven us in Christ. He doesn't judge us with a critical and judgmental spirit. He doesn't judge us according to what we deserve, right? If we have trusted in Christ, then he has forgiven our sin. He has judged us not on the basis of who we are and what we've done, but he judges us on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done. His righteous life counts for ours. And so when we remember how God judges us, it should cause us not to be judgmental and critical towards other people. Instead, we should do what he's going to tell us to do later, which is forgive. And so remembering how much we've been forgiven as his followers, remembering the ways in which God judges us should cause us not to be judgmental towards others. It should cause us not to have a judgmental and critical spirit. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's calling us to. Um, he puts it this way in Matthew. He says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. How many of us want God to judge us the same way we judge other people? Anybody, anybody signing up for that? No, we want God to judge us the way God judges us. Which is not on the basis of who we are and what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And so we should be wanting to judge other people in the same way. Um, next, he says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. This is very, very similar to not judging. The difference here, I think, is that condemning has, has more finality to it. And so 
uh, for example, right, if you, after service, there's kids running around and you see another parent make a decision that you wouldn't make. You, you make a snap judgment about their parenting. And in your head, you think, I, I can't believe they parented their kid that way. That's judging. Don't do it. Jesus, Jesus just said that. Condemning would be seeing that and saying, that person's a bad parent. All of their decisions are bad. Everything they do to parent their kids is bad. I can't learn or benefit from their parenting in any way from my parenting. They are a bad parent. It's taking that judgment to an extreme, to a final extreme. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we are people that don't just judge others, we also condemn others. Because we think that we're right and they're wrong and there isn't a lot to convince us of anything different other than the Spirit's transforming work in us. And the reality for us is that if we're in Christ, God hasn't condemned us as we have deserved, and so we shouldn't condemn others. So he says, judge not, condemn not. Now the commands get, get positive. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Here, right, we should forgive other people. Paul in Ephesians says that we should forgive others as God in Christ forgave us. God has forgiven us of all of our sin, which is insane. Right? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that not just has God, God hasn't just forgiven us of everything that we have done, everything that we will do. Uh, he's forgiven us of all of our sin, like once and for all. Like it's forgiven. Like compare that to, to how you interact with, say, a, a spouse or a roommate or, or a parent or a child. Right? Often we forgive something and then it happens again and then we forgive it and then it happens again and we say, I've already forgiven you twice, why are you still doing this? Right? We get irritated with continual mistakes, continual missteps, continual sinning against us. God always, once and for all, has forgiven us in Christ. That is how we are called to forgive other people. Um, with Forgiveness, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that forgiveness isn't just letting sin go. It's not, just, it's not just overlooking it. Because I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we've forgiven other people when we really haven't done that. Forgiveness is, is a transaction. It's, it's a conversation that happens. It's one person, the, the, the person sinned against, talking with the person who sinned, addressing the sin, calling it what it is, recognizing for what it is, one person asking for forgiveness and the other person giving forgiveness. That is forgiveness. And the reason why it matters is because we need to talk about sin. Right? If, if I sin against my wife, I should not just go to her and say, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? And her say, yep, no big deal. Because sin is a big deal. And I need to understand the gravity of my sin. I need to come to grips with how I treated my wife harshly and repent of it. I need to confess that to her and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have treated you in that way. I shouldn't have sinned against you and against God. And she needs to hear that and say, I forgive you for doing that thing. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is I'm not going to think my sin is that bad. I'm going to think it's no big deal. And she isn't really going to deal with my sin. She's going to try to sweep it under the rug. And then she's going to get bitter at me because I'm a sinner. And 
I keep sinning. And so we, when we forgive one another, we need to have that conversation, even though it's unpleasant. Now, there is a thing, there's forbearance, which is kind of forgiveness without that conversation, but we're not talking about that this morning because Jesus didn't tell us to do that here. He told us to forgive. Um, if, if you want to learn more about that, about forgiveness and what it looks like, there's a book which is actually about marriage called When Sinners Say I Do, which if you are married and you haven't read that book, like, leave now and go read it. Um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And really, if you're just in relationship with people, it's not marriage, roommates, friends, brother, sister, parents, like, it's helpful for all relationships. There's really only maybe two chapters that only apply to marriage. Uh, it, it is really helpful. And there's a section in there on forgiveness and there's a section in there on forbearance. And it will really help you in your relationships start to process sin uh, and forgiveness better. So I would encourage you to check that out. We are called to forgive. Jesus says that we will be forgiven uh, if we forgive others. And so here, again, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who have already trusted in him. Because they have been forgiven, they should forgive others. They should treat other people the way God has treated us in Christ. And that's going to lead to us being forgiven by him because it reveals that we really are his disciples. Next, he tells us to give, and it will be given to us. And here he he explains how it will be given to us. Uh, The promise kind of comes with more of an explanation. He says that good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What he's talking about here is he's talking about like if you went to purchase grain and you go to purchase grain, you take a container with you. The guy selling you grain takes a big scoop, he dumps it into your container. And that's the amount of grain you buy. But in this case, uh, the, the grain is pressed down. And so somebody smashes the grain down into your bucket. And then it's shaken up so that the grain fills all the possible places it could fill. And then it's dumped on top so that it's rounded over on top. You're getting the most grain you can possibly get for your money. This is a very generous seller in this case. He says it's dumped into your lap. And Jesus explains, for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus here is calling us to generous giving. And he says that if we give generously, we will be given to generously. Um, The first thing I think we should recognize about this is that this is not an endorsement of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Right? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel says that you know, if, we just, if we just have enough faith and if we just do the right things, then you know, we'll have a nice house and a nice car and a nice life and you know, we'll have our best life now. Anything you could ever want, God will give you because he wants to bless his people. You just got to have enough faith and you got to name it and you got to claim it and you'll get it. Um, read the New Testament. That, that's not there, right? Scripture tells us that if we follow Jesus, we're going to suffer. Our best life is later. It's in the new heavens and the new earth with him. It's coming. It's not now. Um, and so that, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, you know, if you, if you give $10 to the church, God's going to give you $100 or God's going to give you $10 back. But what he is saying is that if we are generous... God will be generous with us. The first thing we should recognize is that God already has been generous with us. Everything that we have is given to us from God. 
Like our homes, our jobs, our bank accounts, our clothes, our possessions, our cars, anything we have is from him. Um, And even for those of us who think, you know, I, I worked really hard to earn what I got. Maybe that's true for part of your life. But your parents worked a whole lot for you to get what you've got. And their parents worked really hard for them to get what they've got. And none of those people got any of that stuff without God giving it to them. So we need to recognize that God has been generous to us. And because God has given generously to us, we should give generously to others. And this promise seems to tell us that when we do that, God will continue to be generous to us. And so we should be generous. There's really no reason for us not to be uh, other than us just wanting to keep things for ourselves. Next, he tells them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The answers to these questions are no and then yes. No, a blind man cannot lead a blind man. And like, in, in, in Greek, there's a way to ask a question where it's clear which answer you're assuming. Jesus here asks this question in a specific way that's assuming a negative answer. He's saying a blind man cannot lead a blind man. They're, they're going to get lost. They're going to fall into a pit. I think the point here in this context where he's talking about hypocrisy is that we should recognize that all of us have blind spots. There are areas of our lives in which we don't see who we really are, and how we really are, right? Scripture talks about sin as being deceitful and deceiving. There are places that it describes us as as not knowing what makes us stumble. We have blind spots, which is why it's so important for us to be in community with one another, like all of us. Because if there's just two of us, it's just the blind leading the blind. We need more than two people so that Hopefully, somebody in the group doesn't share everybody else's blind spots. And they could say, hey, all of you are missing it in this one way. We need one another because I struggle with things that you don't struggle with. And you struggle with things that I don't struggle with. So we can call out sin in one another in not a judgmental and critical way, but an encouraging and holding one another accountable way. That's part of being the body of Christ with one another. That's part of being family is that we as family, can point out each other's mistakes uh, and not get our feelings hurt too much about it. Um, Next, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. This should both be very encouraging to us and kind of scary to us. It should be encouraging to us because what he's saying is that if we're following Jesus, if we're his disciple, when we're done, When we're fully trained, we're going to be like him. Which is the goal of the Christian life, right? It's for us to become more and more and more and more and more conformed into Christ's image. To become like him. We all acknowledge at the beginning that we're not very much like Christ now. But at the end, when our sanctification is done, when our growth is done, we're going to be made like him. That is, that's great. What should be terrifying to us about this is that often in discipleship, as we're, you know, teaching others, training others, raising up other believers in the church, uh, we make the mistake of not making disciples of Jesus, but making disciples of us. If when 
people we're discipling are fully trained, if they're like us, that's not good. Right? We need to be leading others to Jesus, not leading others to ourselves. Because the blind can't lead the blind. And they're going to have all the blind spots we have. Um, as a pastor, one of the reasons why I love us going through books of the Bible is because it prevents me from just talking about the things I already know. Right? It prevents me from just teaching my favorite passages or my favorite topics. We've got to go through stuff that maybe I don't want to go through. And that helps protect me as a pastor, as an elder, against having uh, you know, all these blind spots in God's Word because you know, we've got to go through a book like Isaiah which is painful to go through at times. Um, Otherwise, we would just be in Matthew forever. We need to make sure that when we're making disciples, we're causing them and calling them to discipleship to Jesus, not to us, because we want them to be fully trained and like him, not fully trained and like us. Next, he's talking specifically about hypocrisy. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This right here, these these two verses are how we win over hypocrisy. This is how we battle it. If we would just believe what Jesus says about us here and apply this to our lives, it would save, I think, a whole lot of trouble in our relationships. Um, First of all, we need to recognize that Jesus is not saying that we can't deal with the speck in somebody else's eye. I think sometimes maybe we read this passage and we come to that conclusion as if he's saying, don't deal with that speck. No, he wants us to deal with the speck, but first he wants us to deal with the log. And so this isn't saying, once again, that we don't call out sin in other people. It's saying that we need to prepare ourselves first before we do that. We need to start by addressing our own sin, and then we can begin to address the sin in other people. So it's not saying that. Second, we need to recognize that the way Jesus frames this little illustration of hypocrisy is that it makes it so that, and he's teaching us that, we will always, 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 always be able to see our sin more clearly than anyone else's. But we often make the mistake of thinking that we can see other people's sin more clearly than we can. We often want to play the Holy Spirit and say, you're, you're doing this, and this is why you're doing this, and if you would just do this, then you would fix it. You'd be like me, who's got this down. It's because we're looking past all the sin in our life that we should be able to see more clearly. When he talks about the speck in the log, I don't think that we should see this as Jesus comparing the, the quantity or even the quality of our sin, as if, you know, we really are, have so much more sin in our life than the other person. I think what he's talking about here is that it's a matter of perspective. We can see our sin more clearly than we can see sin in other people. I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this. 
It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul, writing 1 Timothy toward the end of his life. This is, this is old Paul. This is not new believer Paul. This is old, mature, uh, almost already sanctified Paul. At the end of his life, he says, Christ came in the world to save sinners. And he says, I am the foremost. He doesn't say, I was the foremost. He says, I am. I currently, presently, at the end of my life, almost sanctified. I am the foremost sinner. He's saying he's the worst. He's the chief sinner. He's the most sinful person at the end of his life. Paul is not objectively comparing himself to all other sinners because number one, he doesn't know all those people. Number two, he can't really do that anyway. He's not comparing himself and saying like, I'm literally worse than everyone else. What he's talking about is that he knows and recognizes more of his own sinfulness because he knows his heart, he knows his own brokenness and his own depravity and his own hypocrisy more than he knows it in anyone else. And we are like Paul in that way, if we are honest with ourselves. We know more of our own brokenness and our own sinfulness than we know of anyone else, even the people that we're closest to, because we live inside our heads all the time. We know the things we think about saying, but we don't actually say out loud. We know the things that we think about doing, but we don't do. We know our own brokenness and sinfulness more than anyone else's, and that's always going to be the case. The gospel causes us to grow in awareness of our own sinfulness. And that means that as we grow in the Christian life, we understand that we're not really getting less sinful. We're just discovering more and more ways in which we fall short of the glory of God. And so when we're in relationships with other people, we need to remember that that log is always going to be in our eye. We're always going to know more of our own sin. So we should repent of it, and that should drive us towards humility and guard us from hypocrisy so that we can minister to other people who also have logs in their eyes. When we see that log for what it is, we, we don't judge. We don't condemn. We'll be more willing to forgive. We'll be more willing to give generously because we're continually reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. Right? The, 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 the point isn't for us to see our sinfulness, to see that log and then just focus on our sin. The point is for us to look past it and see Christ who came to save us from our sin once and for all. Right? We are free from our sin. And he also saves us from our sin in a day-to-day way. Right? He didn't come just to free us from our sin and then leave us to figure it out on our own. He sent his spirit to empower us to fight our sin to fight hypocrisy, to fight judgmentalness and uh, an unwillingness to forgive and give. So as we're tempted to be hypocrites and to ignore our own sinfulness and focus instead on the sinfulness of those around us, we need to recognize that whenever we're doing that, we're missing out on the gospel, right? We're choosing to believe a lie instead of believe what's true about us. And it causes us really just to focus on sin instead of focusing on Jesus. And so, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to pray 
and ask the Spirit to, to show you your blind spots, right? To draw your attention to that log that's in your eye that you don't see. And that the Spirit would cause you not to focus on that, not to stay there, but to look past it and to see Christ who came to save you from it. I'm going to pray, and then Caleb is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to save us from our sin, that that once and for all, for those of us who have trusted in you, we are forgiven. We have been forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. We pray that you would help us to see the ways in which we're hypocrites, the ways in which we ignore our own sin and choose instead to focus on others. I pray you would help us to to fight that by your spirit, that we wouldn't judge and condemn, but instead we would forgive as we've been forgiven and we would give generously as we've been so generously given to. We pray now that you would be with us as we continue our service. In your name we pray, amen.